Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for taking the time to download and to listen, to view. Maybe you're watching this on YouTube. I really don't know. But the bottom line is we appreciate the fact that you are here with us. The show this week was a long time coming, so long in coming. We have received more requests from you guys, more requests from the Exam Room Podcast Faithful to talk about this topic than any other. And so your wish is our command. Today, we're going to be covering menopause, how what you eat can affect everything from mood swings to hot flashes. And to help cover everything, I've assembled an all-star panel of experts to take a step-by-step through the process. Dr. Neil Barnard will be joining me before Dr. Christy Cobb makes her big return to the show to field your questions. She, of course, is a plant-based OBGYN living in Little Rock, Arkansas. And then we're going to be welcoming for the first time to the show Dr. Rupali Chada. She is a plant-based psychiatrist in the Los Angeles area, and she's going to be here talking about ways to minimize the depression and emotional vulnerability that can accompany the change of life. The research that we're going to be talking about is fascinating and hopefully can help make that transition a little bit more manageable. So it is indeed a jam-packed show, so let us not waste any more time. Let's just jump right in. Leading off the exam room today is Dr. Neil Barnard. Continuing on here on the exam room podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll. As I said at the top of the show, today's topic is the single most requested that we have ever had from listeners. Got dozens and dozens of messages and emails asking, can we please talk about the change of life? And so here now to help us break it all down is Dr. Neil Barnard. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Great to be with you, Chuck. I am so glad that you are here. Are you surprised at all that so many people are writing in, so many women asking for help with this? Well, I have to say I'm not surprised because it's uh, an issue that affects um, all women. It's it's always going to happen sooner or later. And for some women, some women sail through it, but other other women have problems with menopause where it causes all kinds of symptoms, and they, they're looking for answers, and rightly so. And uh, we'll, we'll end the show with a couple of uh, listener questions they've written in, and I, I've picked a couple that I think a lot of women can relate to. But before Great. we get to those, let's just kind of take a, take a little dive in here. I mean, my first question is, what role does food play when it comes to menopause? Well, first of all, I should maybe say what menopause is not also, because some people imagine that menopause is just this artificial thing that occurs because women are living longer. You'll once in a while hear this argument. Uh, Back 100 years ago, the average lifespan might have been 50. And so now that women are living into their 80s, well, she's just living past her sell-by date and you ought to expect problems. <laughs> um, let me tell you something. There is nothing to that whatsoever. It, it is true that average life expectancy was shorter in years past. But that really wasn't because everyone was dropping dead at 50. What it was was because there was a lot of infant mortality. And that factors into the average. So if you have half the population living to a ripe old age of 80 and the other half dying in infancy of infections and things like that, then the average would be 40. 
Uh-huh. Uh, but people have always lived long lives, um, and the, the idea that somehow you're past your sell-by date, that is just complete nonsense. What menopause really means is that the ovary has run out of viable oocytes. These are, are eggs. It's not released to them anymore. That causes hormonal changes, and so the periods stop. And, yeah, foods do seem to play a role, and we, we have seen this both when we look at international comparisons where people are on different kinds of diets. They get a different experience of menopause. And as their diets change, uh, say, westernization in Asian countries, then the experience of menopause changes too. So we have a lot of evidence that um, diet plays a role, uh, sometimes a harmful role, but it can be helpful too. Well, let's let's talk about those diets because it, it really is – I love any analysis comparing the Eastern and Western diets because they are so different historically speaking. And then you see so many different health outcomes, to put it in layman's terms, you know, between the two cultures. It's very fascinating. Of course, menopause, the change of life is factored in there. The Eastern diet – you know, we, we've talked a lot about that on the show when it comes to blue zones in particular. You know, look at the Okinawan diet. You know, not a whole lot of animal products in there, very light on that. Right. And animal products, by and large, have a lot of hormones in them. So I'm curious, what role do those hormones found in animal products play in this whole process? Uh, you, you're right. Um, and it's not just Okinawa. If you, Okinawa is at the very bottom of Japan, but Japan overall, um, it didn't follow exactly the Okinawan diet, which was um, very heavy in sweet potatoes, for example. That was the Okinawan favorite staple. Right. Uh, for the rest of Japan, it was rice, soy products, uh, some use of fish, but it wasn't a humongous chunk of fish in the middle of the plate. It was rice in the middle of the plate. Uh, really effectively, uh, no cheese, very little um, dairy meat, all, all these kind of things. Um, and that's important for the reason that you, that you mentioned. Um, dairy products have hormones in them because the cow is pregnant. And many people have hypothesized that if you're pumping up the amount of hormones in your body prior to menopause... And then when menopause arrives, the amount of hormones in your body comes crashing down because your body's not making them anymore. You effectively have sort of hormone withdrawal that is much more accentuated than if you weren't eating those hormones along with it. Now, it's not just the hormones in the food, um, but foods, certain foods help your body to eliminate hormones. So a woman's hormone levels, if she is on a meat-based diet without fiber, with a lot of dairy products, could be 25-30% higher than when she's on a healthier diet. Is is that why some women uh, experience when the hot flashes, a lot is, is made of those. So is that why some women have a more uh, or, or are more affected by hot flashes than others? You just talked about that 25-30% difference and then the hormone withdrawal essentially. I would assume then that that affects the hot flashes. That's the, that's the hypothesis, exactly. And I didn't mean to say that, that, that it's all the hormones in the food, but it's the diet that causes the hormone levels to be higher. So it's a little bit of it is the hormones in the cheese, but a lot of it is just the way foods cause the body to, to handle hormones differently. And can the change of life occur earlier or later depending on a person's diet? Has there been any research into that? Evidence suggests that the reproductive window, if I can put it that way, between um, the time at menarche when the periods start and menopause when they end, that that window can, can change. And it's been changing really for more than 150 years. Mm. Um, at the, in, in the teen years, if you look back 
around 18, the mid-1800s, the average age of the first period that girls would have, it could have been as high as 17, 18 years of age. Today, that's unheard of. That, that, doctor, that, that girl would be brought to her doctor's office, like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? you know, um, now you'll have uh, girls having their periods at 10, uh, 11, earlier than that sometimes. And if you think about it, you're not ready to be a mother at, at that age. You're not psychologically mature enough. Why should you be physically able to raise it, to, to have a baby at that point? And some of us have been concerned that it's hormonal changes that are coming from the foods that we're eating. Um, on the other end of life, there does seem to be uh, some stretching of that menopausal window as well. That said, menopause is going to happen. Um, it's part of life. It's, it's a normal part of life, and it's not a disease. It's not a diagnosis. It's not a bad thing. Um, in my view, it's in part nature's way of protecting you. It might sound funny, but, but what I mean is that during a woman's reproductive life, every month she has a surge of estrogenic hormones that are bathing the cells of the breast and the uterus and all the rest of her body in hormones that also in addition to the good things that these hormones do, they also cause cancer. Mm. Um, if a woman has too much estrogen in her blood and too many of these estrogenic surges, her risk of breast cancer is higher. Same with uterine cancer. So let's assume for the moment, if we can put it this way, that nature, uh, nature has some wisdom about it. And so a woman can be fertile for a limited window, but not beyond that. And when you're 51, 52, 55, this is not a time to have a toddler on your, the floor of your kitchen. This is a time to get on with the rest of your life. For sure. <laughs> um, you have a lot of stuff to do at that point and, a lot of, uh, and you need some time to do that. So the reproductive window is, is relatively short. Hmm. You mentioned these hormonal surges and estrogen in particular, and you earlier mentioned also fiber being able to regulate estrogen. How does that work together? What's the correlation there? It's an interesting thing. Uh, the liver filters estrogens out of the blood. Actually, the liver filters a lot of things out of the blood. Uh, estrogens, testosterone, medications you might take. The liver is like a filter, and it says, what's this doing in the bloodstream? It takes the estrogen out. It sends it through a little tube that's called the bile duct that goes to the intestinal tract. And there that estrogen goes down the bile duct into the intestinal tract, and it hooks onto fiber, which is the roughage in plants. Right. And the, the, that carries it out with the waste. But if your lunch was chicken breast or salmon or cheese, these don't have any fiber in them at all. So the estrogen still is pulled out by the liver and sent down the bile duct. But when it gets into the intestinal tract, there's no fiber for it to hook onto. What happens? It's reabsorbed back into the circulation, into the bloodstream. And it goes around again. And the liver finds that very same estrogen molecule and says, what are you doing here? I thought I got rid of you. And it said, well, I wanted to leave, but uh, there's no fiber for me to hook onto. So the liver takes it again and sends it down the bile duct back into the intestinal tract. There's still no fiber there. So it circulates back into the bloodstream. This is, uh, this is called enterohepatic circulation. Entero means intestinal tract. Hepatic means the liver, like, like hepatitis. Sure. So enterohepatic circulation means the circulation of hormones and other substances from the intestinal tract up to the liver, back down to the intestinal tract, up to the liver, happens time, over and over and over again all day. And the net effect is the woman has more estrogenic stimulation than she should have. And that uh, spells a higher risk of cancer and all kinds of other problems. Wow. 
Okay. So, so the answer is when if if <laughs> let's say you're on a plant based diet, which is what I recommend for 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 anybody. Right. Um, every mouthful has some fiber in it, a little or a lot. That fiber is what your body needs to get rid of the, the things that the liver is trying to eliminate. Otherwise, you're recycling your garbage. Ah. Well, don't want to, don't want to, don't want to do that. Don't want to recycle the garbage. Got to get rid of the garbage. Take out the trash. Take out the trash. Uh, hot flashes. I want to go back to those real quick because right. all of those messages I was talking about at the top of this segment, all of those uh, emails, the women they all mentioned hot flashes, and it's to them the most annoying thing in the world. And one listener in particular even asked, "What is this hot flash? Why is this occurring?" Can you, can you shed some light on that for her? Yes. Um, hot flashes, we do think, are really a sign of estrogen withdrawal. Um, it's, you feel this tremendous heat. It comes up from the chest, and you'll be fanning yourself, and then you'll sweat, and then it can be followed by, by, this, by cold chills. Um, they, can, they, they can be for, – for some women, they don't occur at all. For some women, they're mild. For some, they are really annoying, and they, they come and they go, and, and sometimes they can last for years. For almost everybody, they do go away. But for the, while they're there, they can be annoying. They can wake you up from sleep. Um, the big caution I have is that up until, oh, several years ago, a woman would go to the doctor and say, I've got these hot flashes. And the doctor would say, I've got just the answer for you. It's a prescription of Premarin. Take it. And it's horse estrogens. It, and it will knock, like other estrogens, it will sort of bring you back to your premenopausal self mm-hmm. and the, the hot flashes go away. But there are several problems with, with this. Um, I mentioned it's horse you did. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely caught my attention. Um, the, the word, the, what they do is they take these horses, um, particularly in, in Canada, and it was also in North Dakota. Um, they tether them, and they impregnate them. Uh, and then a pregnant mare puts out a lot of estrogen in her urine. So they hook up a bag and collect the urine, and then they distill it into pills that Wyeth Ayers would sell as Premarin. And Premarin is a shortening of the words pregnant mare's urine, Premarin. And they would sell it, and it was, and it was very popular. Um, and, and the idea was it won't, it won't just knock out your hot flashes, but it'll make you younger and sexy and help your brain and prevent heart disease and all these promises that turned out not to be true. Um, it, it is true that it would um, stop the hot flashes, but... Then, as time went on, the women were clearly at higher risk for breast cancer and uterine cancer, so the doctor stops it. And then the hot flashes, which had just been delayed for many women, kick in at that point. Right. Um, and all this whole idea of being youthful and uh, uh, stopping Alzheimer's, it turns out it appears to be the opposite. Oh, wow. Um, the Women's Health Initiative was a huge government-run study that was um, a real alarm bell because it showed that these uh, medications have risks. So um, that's all the bad news is is hot flashes are likely to happen, um, and for some women they can be annoying. Um, many women just wait it out. That's a perfectly sensible strategy. There have been a number of studies on soy products, uh, and I'm talking about sometimes it's soy extracts, um, uh, soy protein. Mm-hmm. Other times it's just soy foods like soy milk or tofu. And what I have found is that they do seem to work for some women, and they don't work so hot for others. So since they're always safe, women can try them and, and, and see, see if it's helpful for them. 
I want to go back to Premarin. That that was the name of the drug, right? I wonder if the conversations in those exam rooms, thank you, uh, would have gone a little bit differently between the doctor and the patient if the doctor said to the woman, said, hey, I'm going to write you a prescription for horse urine. How many fewer women do you think would have taken the drug at that point? Well, you know, it's a funny thing because there are many brands of estrogens, and they're not derived from horses. It's just this is Premarin's thing. You can make their synthetic... Uh, hormone products. Um, there are products derived from plants. Um, they could still be. They could still have risks. I mean, if you're making an estrogenic product, it can still increase the risk of cancer. So I'm not necessarily promoting them. But yeah, Premarin is the one that comes from a horse. And I have to say, for people who have a heart for animals, what these horses go through is creepy. Yeah, I have to say. Um, to take that drug, you really have to just close your eyes. Um, and I encourage people to just steer clear of it completely. Mm. I want to shift gears a little bit. And we've talked about kind of the physical side effects. Let's talk about the psychological side effects that come with it. A lot of women also complain about anxiety and some depression that goes with that. I would imagine with the diet being so closely linked to hormones that the diet then also plays a role in that anxiety, in that depression. It does. Um, when women go through menopause, there are often uh, mood changes. As you mentioned, uh, it can be depression, it can be anxiety. Also, uh, many women feel cognitive changes. In other words, I'm just not myself. I can't remember anything. And, and that, that's partly, I presume, hormonal changes. It's also partly sleeplessness. Mm. You know, if you woke up seven times in the night, you're just not yourself. All those things can go together. But th there's been an amazing case study. I, I'm going I'm to use that word for it in just the cultural changes that have gone on in Japan. If you look at Japan, 1960s, 1970s, uh, hot flashes were quite uncommon. Maybe not totally unknown, but uncommon. They didn't have a word for them. Um, and the question was, are women just too modest and they don't want to talk about it? Mm. Um, so researchers have talked with their gynecologists and, and, and found that, no, they just don't really seem to occur um, in Japan to the extent that they were occurring in the United States. However, um, things happened in Japan. Uh, McDonald's moved in and all the other fast food chains moved in. Dairy products became um, uh, much more fashionable, whereas before they were practically unknown. Uh, rice consumption fell, has, has continued to fall dramatically. It's being replaced by meat and dairy and so forth. So in other words, the diet is westernizing. As that has occurred... Uh, menopausal symptoms have skyrocketed. And so that has suggested, wait a minute, all right, suddenly the high-fiber plant-based Japanese diet is being replaced by a fiber-free Western diet, so you're goofing up your ability to get rid of these hormones. You're having hormonal changes. At the same time, depression is coming in much more commonly. And I've looked through these data, and my, my first thought was, it's an amazing thing. If you, if you Googled depression, Right um, in Japan, um, you, what you would find is maybe economic depression. There, there, there just was no discussion of psychological depression. And when you look at cases of it, they were extremely rare prior to Westernization of the diet. And now it's all over the place, and it's it's very very common. And um, the pharmaceutical companies are thrilled because they're selling all kinds of drugs, of course, antidepressants. But it's it's an amazing thing. And so I thought, okay. Is it that uh, the Japanese folks who are, who are famous for working, working extremely long hours and sometimes sacrificing their family lives and their, and their social lives for their work, 
maybe they weren't working so hard before? No. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. Um, were they more stoic before and not now? Maybe. But what I'm inclined to, to think is that these changes are real. Um, we are seeing several things. Great increases in breast cancer, in menopausal symptoms. These are, these are hormo- signs of hormonal changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mood changes are coming in, but also all the metabolic things you don't want, diabetes, obesity, uh, heart disease, and oddly enough, even some dermatologists are saying that there's more hair loss in men. Really? Um, baldness. And so what they're saying is, wait, wait, wait. What we have is ma- it's not just female hormones that are changing. Male hormones are changing, too. Um, and so there's too much testosterone activity in the hair follicles, causing hair to fall out. Interesting. So stay tuned. We don't really have good studies on that, but, but it's, this has been, uh, these are all observations that are, are coming from this culture that has really be- become a laboratory. Uh, I'll give you just one more real quickly. Uh, in Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula um, was a place where people would eat tortillas and black beans right. and maybe some salsa, and it was not a big meaty diet, and, and there was no uh, you know, cheese uh, counter at the store. That's right up your alley, isn't it? Though? <laughs> <laughs> you mean picking on cheese? <laughs> well, um, the, the, what, what, the vitamin J diet. You oh, love the oh, jalapenos and the, and the Mexican food. Oh, you mean the, the, me- yeah. yes, the Mexican food, yes. Um, but what's happened, it's, it's amazing. When you look in, in uh, Mexico, decades ago, it was a very similar story. There was really no reports uh, among women who were studied of hot flashes or menopausal problems. Well, what's happened? Get on a plane and go to Cancun, and what you will suddenly see is for miles around, it's a westernized diet. You'll still be able to get a tortilla and some beans, but there is cheese and meat and fried foods everywhere. And what we believe is happening is that these the same. it's the same kind of phenomenon that we saw in Japan with this meatization, cheeseization of the diet, and we're seeing that uh, in Mexico as well. It's it's so funny, you know. It all seems in this conversation. A lot of it comes back to the the westernization of a diet which lacks in fiber, and fiber just seems to be like something that would be really beneficial in this circumstance. Not just for menopause, but for so many other ailments as we've discussed on the show. But basically, what you're saying here is fiber plays a crucial role here. Yes, uh, it does for the reason that we discussed, that the fiber escorts hormones out of the body. You'll still have the hormones that nature wanted you to have, Mm -hmm. but it eliminates the excess so that a woman, according to this theory, a woman is accommodated to a lower, healthier estrogen level all her life. And so the change at menopause is not so severe compared to a woman who is accommodated to a very high estrogen level up until menopause, at which point she comes crashing down. But I have to say it's not just fiber. Uh, Researchers, these studies have been done several times where you change the diet uh, of a group of women. Mm -hmm. And what you find is, is if you increase fiber, her estrogen level will come down to healthier levels. If you cut the fat content of her diet, same thing. Um, so you can manipulate both the fat content and the fiber content. And that's why a meaty diet coming into Japan is such a problem because it's high in fat and it doesn't have any fiber at all. So it's changing both of those things. Gotcha. All right. So fat is, that's another big one. Um, real quick, if a woman is going through that change and she's just so frustrated with the mood swings and the hot flashes and she switches to a plant-based diet, 
I would how long I guess that this is the question that she would ask how long do you think it would be before she starts to see some changes and those hormones start to get a little bit more regulated um, at the risk of discouraging our listeners I would I would say that the best time to change is about 30 years before menopause um, <laughs> because, because hurry up <laughs> because um, not to be too facetious about it but you 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 want to you want the body to accommodate to a healthy diet and right. and for that to be the normal um, that said um, if a woman changes her diet, I would actually suggest a couple of, of things. Um, there have been all kinds of supplements that have been looked at, but I have been more impressed by the use of soy than others. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't think it helps everybody, but it does seem to help many women. And that you, they do experience a change usually within a couple of weeks um, that they will see a change. But I would go further than that. Um, if a woman has extra weight, what she's going to find is that losing that extra weight does help um, make the hot flashes come down. It also reduces breast cancer risk. And so that means not just vegan. Vegan is key. But also keep the fat content low because if you do those two things, no animal products and keep the overall oils low, a woman's going to lose about maybe on average a, roughly a pound a week, something like that, if she's got excess weight. And that will help. Uh, one, one more step. Sure. L- lace up your sneakers. Um, if you start exercising, the exercise does seem to help the hot flashes a little bit. It also help, helps a woman sleep better, and it will have a marginal um, uh, acceleration of the weight loss efforts too. So those things will seem to make that will will. will do, do seem to help the menopausal symptoms. I knew that you were the right guy for this segment. I really did. <laughs> uh, and and you, uh, we should mention, just plant an early seed. You have a, a book coming out, I believe, early next year. Man, looking way ahead. Uh, tackling hormones head on, right? Uh, yes. Uh, it's called Hidden Hormones, and it's coming out... Um February 4th, if I understand right. Well, mark your calendars. (laughs) Yeah, start lining up now. Um, We're a little bit ahead of the game, but um, the reason I wrote this book is that years ago, I was sitting at my desk and a young woman called me and she had menstrual cramps, just terrible off the scale, can't get out of bed type menstrual cramps. And so I started to think through how could I help her deal with what is obviously a hormonal condition? And we ended up doing a research study that was quite revolutionary, I have to say. Um, and we've, we've, we've published on this and written about it, but I wanted to have a book that women and men could use to tackle the hormonal issues that are so much a part of life. I'm speaking of fertility issues for men and for women. Um, who would have thought that food could affect fertility or cramps or menopausal symptoms, as, as we've talked about today, or hormone-related cancers uh, for men? That's prostate cancer or testicular cancer for women, breast cancer uterine cancer, ovarian cancer. Could those things be related to food? The answer is absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and things you would never expect, like thyroid conditions, and things you would expect, like diabetes. Right. Um, insulin is a hormone. All of these things um, have strong, strong connections with food. People are unaware of them, and they go to see the doctor who has never even heard of it. So I figure, all right, <laughs> it's time to have a little bit of an owner's manual that people can use, and it's called Hidden Hormones. It's coming out in February. Well, we will definitely have you back on the show to talk about that sometime, maybe in early January, right before yeah. the release, uh, but we'll certainly also have you back on before then. But so for today, I thank you very much. This has just been a wealth of information. Thank you, Chuck. Quick 
favor to ask before we welcome Dr. Christy Cobb to the show. If you have not already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee and leave us a five-star rating when you do. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever it is that you download your favorite shows from, that's where you can find us. And we would greatly appreciate it. I also want to take a second to thank you. Thank you for a record-setting month of May. You guys shattered the download record for any month, and I cannot thank you enough from the bottom of my heart. It truly means the world to me that you're willing to take this weekly journey with us. You know, every single time that I sit down to tape one of these episodes, I feel like I learn so much, and that knowledge then is so inspiring. It truly feels like we are making the world a healthier place one show at a time. And hopefully you feel the same way. So let's keep that momentum up. Head over to Apple Podcast or Shoutcast or Stitcher. Subscribe to the show and then tell a friend, tell a family member, tell as many people as you can so that they too can benefit from what it is that we're talking about here. We're talking about improving the quality of your life, making it a healthier, happier life. That's what we want. Now then, turning our attention back to the topic at hand, Dr. Christy Cobb is about to join us via Skype from her office in Little Rock, and I have assembled some of the most frequently asked questions that you guys sent in about menopause. We're going to be covering everything from night sweats to weight gain to metabolism, all of that and more. So you ready? Here we go. Continuing our look at menopause and plant-based diets here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee, the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, joined now via Skype by Dr. Christy Cobb. She is a plant-based OBGYN based in Little Rock, Arkansas, and it is so great to have you back on the program. Welcome, Dr. Cobb. Thanks. It's great to be back. This has been one of the most requested topics from Exam Room listeners, and I'm so glad that we're getting an opportunity to do that. And... I'm even more happy that you're here because I've gotten so many questions and I just thought that you would be the person to answer them for us. So uh, you ready to uh, to do a little Q&A? Let's dive in. All right. So uh, the first question is, uh, it's kind of a long-winded one, but I think that a lot of listeners are going to be able to associate with it. So uh, it begins, the decline in estrogen impacts insulin and how the body stores fat. All of my dietitian friends think I am nuts for avoiding animal-based protein and eating a high-carb diet, as I do most times. I respectfully listen to their advice and keep doing my own things, but I'm still trying to understand the science of what happens with the hormones throughout this process. And she adds that she's a clinical social worker and often challenged with the most difficult science and what impact that has on the body. And so she's hoping that you're going to be able to shed a little more light on that. I hope that that makes sense. Dr. Cobb, (laughs) does it make sense to you? Yeah, I feel like I'm back in my oral boards again. That's a doozy. (laughs) I think we can break it down. From what I hear, she's got questions about how the metabolism changes after menopause and what is the ideal diet to maximize the benefit from an otherwise normal physiologic process. And I think that's one thing I do want to touch on is that menopause is not a disease. And a lot of the experiences that we have have been turned into symptoms 
that require like a cure. And so as I tell my patients, no one ever died of menopause. You may feel like you want to kill somebody, but no one ever died of it. And it's like adolescence in reverse. There, It's a phase and there's into it, but sometimes when we don't know when that end's going to be, it can be very anxiety provoking. So um, there is some data that just supports that when estrogen levels go down, that metabolism changes. I mean, that's fairly well accepted. And without doing a really deep dive into insulin and all that, I think the most important point people need to know is about body fat. People that enter menopause closer to their ideal body weight report fewer symptoms. And people that maintain their body weight through menopause or putting themselves, or ideal body weight, are putting themselves at less risk of chronic illness and things that will kill you, like cancer and heart disease and diabetes. And so it's almost hard to separate which is more important. So I, I think you just need to do both. So eating a plant-based diet before menopause, hopefully your whole life, is the most important thing you can do because we know that the other place that our body makes estrogen after the ovaries stop being the primary you know, estrogen factory, besides the adrenals, is fat or adipose tissue. So people that eat a very high-fat diet, such as the standard American diet, have higher levels of estrogen to start with. Therefore, when your ovaries stop ovulating and you have that, you know, estrogen progesterone roller coaster of menopause, if you start at a higher level of estrogen because you're above your ideal body weight and you're consuming a great deal of animal fat, you're going to feel that drop more substantially versus if you're eating a low fat diet, you're at your ideal body weight, you have a lower percent of body fat. When that drop happens, it's not going to be as severe. And this is evidenced by data that we have out of Asia. You know, some cultures don't even have a word for hot flash. I think that's about the strongest evidence there is. If there's not a word for it, then it's nothing you have to talk about. And so I think that eating a, you know, a, we're, we're carbivores. That's the biochemistry of our body. We convert things into sugar to make our cells run with very rare exception. And so eating a carbohydrate-rich diet is good, but you want to make sure it's a low-fat, high-fiber carbohydrate-rich diet. So, you know, there's ways to be plant-based and still not be healthy. So you've got to eat a well-rounded, low-fat, high-fiber plant-based diet to maximize the, you know, the benefit of having high fiber without having that marked drop from standard American to menopausal standard American diet. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. Okay. Hopefully it, it <laughs> does for, for a long question. <laughs> I, I know. Hopefully it makes sense for the, uh, for the listener who sent that in as well. Uh, next question has to do with soy. She writes in, can soy help me with those hot flashes? I've had friends suggest that, and I've also seen it online, but I don't know how it would help. There's a, some modest data that supports that um, the soy isoflavones can maybe help with Vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats. Um, again, I think primary prevention, trying to avoid the hot flash to start with is very important. And so it will not make the hot flashes go away, but it might be better than nothing. The more important reason to add soy to your diet is that I, the best explanation I ever heard was it's like musical chairs. When a soy estrogen is sitting on your, your estrogen receptor, it's not activating it as strongly as an animal-based estrogen might. The time to focus on that about adding soy to your diet is not during menopause. It's actually during adolescence. And girls that have a higher soy protein diet during adolescence have a lower incidence of breast cancer later in life. So for all the grandmas going through menopause, be sure you share with your teenage granddaughters that they need to be benefiting from this as well. 
I remember the first time, I think I was talking with uh, one of our dietitians on staff, Lee Crosby, and she was telling me about the importance of young girls eating soy and, and just paying dividends, you know, decades, decades, decades down the line. It, Based off of what you're eating in high school and middle school, it's just mind-blowing to me. It's true. It's like an investment in your future. And one more point on adding soy-based foods during menopause. Um, that also means that you're not eating other things. If you have a soy burger, you're not eating a beef burger. And so not only will maybe the soy estrogens help some, but you're not adding animal hormones and animal toxins to your diet. So I think it, you've got to remember that it's replacing something arguably worse. Here's another question, and this woman, she just put it all out there, Dr. Cobb. I, I just appreciate the fact that she's just, like, writing in, and she needs the answers, and she needs them right now. Uh, she, she writes in, uh, I've been plant-based since 2010, but the scale is climbing higher and higher and higher, and now I'm fighting hot flashes and night sweats, not to mention libido changes. Too much information, I know, but help! I'm struggling with weight gain in places I've never had trouble, around the middle especially. Has my metabolism really screeched to a halt? Also interested in if there's anything I can do to help ease these physical changes women go through. It feels like we are doubly cursed with the before, during, and after when it comes to menstruation. Help me. Oh, wow. She sounds like one of my patients. No, <laughs> seriously, most of my patients are 45 to 65. I have a mostly menopausal practice. So her question really echoes what I hear almost every single day in clinic. So Okay, to break hers down, um, let's just go with libido. Let's start with that first. Um, you know, when you're not having that LH surge every month and making an egg and ovulating, your body's not telling you you need to go find a mate and procreate. Um, that does have some libido changes. And libido is so complicated. It is truly psychosomatic. It actually begins here and it's affected down in other parts of the body. The one thing people can absolutely have control of, though, is their vascular status. You know, vascular disease anywhere is vascular disease everywhere. And while it's all fun and games and to talk about male sexual dysfunction, female sexual dysfunction is actually very similar. And so when you have vascular issues, you're going to have less blood flow to very sensitive areas. And because what causes the lubrication for certain activities is not a magical gland that makes that lubrication, it's a transudative exudate. And so if you have less blood flow, I think it's really important to think about vascular disease. And so people that have high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, and they wonder why things are different down there. Well, if you're a man, it's an easy explanation. But for women, it's really actually a very similar process. It's all about vasodilation. So that's one thing you can work on. Um, what was her other one about um, weight gain, obesity, yeah. right? Um, you know, one of the saddest days of med school for me was when I learned that, you know, weight gain and metabolism is a math equation. There's calories in calories out. And so metabolism does go down after menopause. Some people say that it's because of, uh, you know, there's osteopenia and osteoporosis, the thinning of the bones, but there's also a sarcopenia, which is thinning of the muscles. People lose their lean muscle mass. We've all heard that muscle burns more calories than fat. 
So if you're, for easy math, I always tell people, let's say for, you're losing 1% of your muscle mass every year. And I don't even know if that's a good number. But that means you could be eating the same things, having the same activity level, and you would still gain weight because you're not burning as, much, as many calories at baseline. So I really encourage people to do everything they can to hold on to their lean muscle mass. And that means not just um, cardio, but weight-bearing exercises. Use your body every day to keep that muscle mass there. It's not impossible to gain muscle mass after menopause, but it takes a great deal of work. And so if she finds that her numbers are going up, she needs to be more careful about the quality and the nutrient density of the calories that she's eating and not eating too many calories. Because whether it's a fat, a protein, or a carbohydrate, if you have too many calories at the end of the day, it will eventually be stored as fat. And then being mindful of everything she can do to keep her metabolism up. And paradoxically, not even not paradoxically, maybe Concurrently, people that exercise release serotonin, and people that release serotonin tend to have a better elevated mood. And when your mood is better, oftentimes libido follows. So when I speak with my patients that have very fulfilling sex lives and seem to be close to their ideal body weight and just flourishing, it's usually people that have a regular exercise routine. Um, and I don't think you can add exercise a bad diet, but I think that you've got to keep that as part of, the, part of your regimen. It's, it's it's definitely a balance there. And, you know, one of the things that I'd like to point out that I thought was really interesting that we've also had on a previous show, I think it was Dr. Jim Loomis that introduced me to the concept of after meal calorie burn. And he demonstrated how much higher that is when a person eats a, a plant based meal versus something that has meat or dairy products in it. And so you think, well, one after meal calorie burn, that's that's not really going to be all that significant. But Okay, maybe not after one meal, but three meals a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, that after meal calorie burn, that metabolism, if you want to call it that, is up a little bit, and that may help people out a little bit more as well. That's true. That's true. Whether you're, I forget, not thermogenic. There's a word for that, though, where when you're eating a plant-based diet, it takes a lot of energy to digest that, and that's going to pay dividends over the next few hours, even if you're asleep. I believe it's because of the higher fiber content, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. Yeah. Again, fiber is fiber. Like fiber should be my middle name. I mean, <laughs> you're going to have to fight Lee Crosby for that one. We've already dubbed okay, her the fiber can, queen. Name twin. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, and, and you know, so much of what also you, you said there made a whole lot of sense to me about blockages going towards sensitive areas. And yeah, it is very common for that to happen with a man. And I, I don't think that the typical man, the husband in the relationship kind of realizes that the same thing can happen to the wife or the girlfriend. You know, it's it's just really interesting to me how there is that correlation there that I, maybe the different sexes don't even think about. Oh, exactly. Um, I had uh, a spouse in for a consult, and the best way I explained it, I said, you know, do you like to eat biscuits? And he's like, yeah. I said, well, have you ever started to eat a biscuit, and you try to swallow it, and it was too dry? He's like, oh, it hurt. Yeah, I got stuck in my throat. Actually, he said, I prefer cornbread. I was like, okay, cornbread, biscuits, whatever. So what, what do you do? He said, well, you take a swig of tea. I was like, well, exactly. So we have to be careful to make sure that we have the adequate amount of lubrication so things don't hurt, right? And it was like like a light bulb went off, and I knew that their marriage was taking a totally different turn from there on out. Um, so it, it's kind of fun. It's fun to help people just have those moments where they realize it's so simple, and it doesn't have to be the elephant in the room. And I love the fact that you just hit the southern trifecta with tea, cornbread, and biscuits. <laughs> 
Yeah, you can tell that I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas, huh? I love it. I like you just spoke to the Southerner in me. I was like, tea, cornbread. Yep, yep, yep. She is from Arkansas. <laughs> That's outstanding. Well, Dr. Christy Kopp, I cannot thank you enough for your time. Hopefully, we have shed some light uh, on those uh, questions that the listeners answered or asked, I should say. Uh, and I'm sure that there will be uh, far more follow-up. So perhaps we can have you on again in the future. Yeah, I'm always happy to go deeper and clarify more. And it does get a lot more complicated. But at the end of the day, the message is low fat, high fiber, mostly plants, all plants, actually. And then, you know, exercise every day, move your body, lift your body weight. The day we start dying is the day that we start losing the fight against gravity. So I think people really, really it's, it's so easy to do. It's so simple. We don't have to make it complicated. No, hey, you know what? And and on that exercise front, let me ask you, one of the ways that I'd lost all my weight, it wasn't that typical go to the gym and run on the treadmill and all of that. Like I literally just built the exercise into my day. So yes, I would go for a walk on my lunch break. But how much would a person benefit a woman in this case specifically benefit just by making sure that she's taking the stairs instead of the elevator or maybe parking a greater distance in the parking lot and then walking to wherever it is that she's going? Would she get some sort a benefit out of that in this case sure it doesn't have to be 30 minutes consecutive obviously that's great because you're going to switch over the the way your body's you know burning energy um but for pregnancy for example it's supposed to be 150 minutes a week and i said they don't have to be consecutive so every little bit counts and also it's a mindset it's the i'm not going to spend 10 minutes driving around to find the closest parking spot i'm going to park in the back not worry about it and i'm going to push my heavy shopping cart and i'm going to load double up the shopping bags and i'm going to move my body the way my great-grandmother moved her body. When you look at 100 years ago, when people didn't have the obesity problems, part of it was diet, obviously, but a lot of it was that we didn't have all these conveniences. So, you know, I say my biggest exercise is running through an airport with heavy luggage. (laughs) But there's something to that. You know, I take a lot of pride in lifting things and moving things and being able to get through my day without having to use a bunch of conveniences or other people to help me. So I think that you're spot on there, that it's a lifestyle of taking the stairs and parking in the back of the parking lot and lifting heavy things. And when you get to a point where you realize maybe you can't do that, then working with a physical therapist or a trainer or someone that can help you strengthen those areas um, where you find you have weakness, and that's going to help to avoid back injuries, back pain, joint pain, and other problems down the road as well. Yeah, and the last thing that I'll say about that, that circling the parking lot and just parking far away, that yeah. really does add years to your life uh, just by the fact that you're going to be saving those 10 minutes, not circling the parking lot and burning gas. You're going to save money. for elevators. Yeah, I know. Waiting for the elevator, you could be halfway up the stairs. Oh, it's such a fun game to me. Uh, you know, when I first started doing that and I was losing the weight, I would always, you know, it became a game. Can I beat the person who's waiting for the elevator? And nine times out of ten, I would. I would without even breaking a sweat. Mm-hmm. Or if you feel like you don't have the joint ability to go up the stairs, well, then always go down the stairs. You'll yep. even burn more calories walking downstairs, even if you take the elevator going up. So, yep. yeah, because I work at a 10-story hospital, so I won't pretend that I take the elevator every time, but, or that I take the stairs every time. But I do when I can, and those days I feel better, and I feel proud of myself. And one good decision tends to make me make more good decisions versus a bad decision, then you make more bad decisions. Well, also when I was just getting going, you know, I worked uh, on the sixth floor, and I obviously couldn't do six floors right away, but I would walk two or three flights and then take the elevator the rest of the way, you know. So do what you can is essentially the message here. Oh, exactly. Well, Dr. Christy Cobb, uh, I am going to go run and get some biscuits and cornbread and tea and... (laughs) 
tap right into my southern roots, and, <laughs> and so we'll sign off here. But Dr. Christy Cobb, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Good to, good to talk to you. Have a great day. If you have a question that we didn't get to, I would love to hear from you. Just tweet me, at Chuck Carroll, WLC. That's Carroll with two R's, two L's, and the WLC standing for Weight Loss Champion. Go ahead and tweet me using the hashtag ExamRoomPodcast. You can also tweet the show, at PCRM. And you can also message us on Instagram, at Chuck Carroll, WLC, once again, or at Physicians Committee. And we will get to as many of your questions as possible on an upcoming show. Speaking of things that are coming up, time is running out for you to get your tickets to the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine right here in beautiful Washington, D.C. Dr. Neil Barnard and a host of other big names in the plant-based community will be there July 26th and 27th, sharing the most recent findings on lifestyle medicine. Going to be taking a closer look at the link between the rising rates of obesity and heart disease, but lowering the risk of developing it in the first place. Dr. Robert Osfeld, who was on the show last week, will also be there, as will Dr. Dean Ornish. Dr. Lee Frame, she's a leading authority on gut bacteria. She, too, will be there, giving us a peek at where microbiome research is headed in the future. And I got to tell you, she is a whiz when it comes to the bacteria that is living in your gut. She is an absolute gut bacteria whiz. So she's going to be there along with so many others. And plus, I'm going to be there taping episodes of the exam room live from the conference as well. And it would be so great to see you there. I would love to meet you. I would love to shake your hand. And you all, you are just awesome. So please come and visit us. You can get a full list of speakers and register for the conference by visiting pcrm.org slash ICNM. Hope to see you there in the nation's capital. Now then, Dr. Rupali Chada is ready to join us via Skype from her office in Los Angeles as we continue to explore the link between diet and menopause. And it is really an honor to welcome her to the show for the first time. Dr. Chada is going to be giving us some really good advice on managing the emotional volatility that often accompanies the change of life. And her advice starts with what's at the end of your fork. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. I'm very excited about my next guest joining me all the way via Skype from Los Angeles. We welcome to the program, she is a plant-based psychiatrist, Dr. Rupali Chadra. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. It is so good to have you here. I, I got to say right off the bat, you and I have a mutual friend who has been talking you up forever and a day. You say, you got to get her on. You got to get her on. And I thought that this was the perfect opportunity for you to finally come on the exam room. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think that we should start here. This is a really interesting show that we're doing, and I really want to talk about the correlation between food and mood. They they really seem to go kind of hand in hand. Um, and in terms of menopause, a lot of women will, as I understand it, go through a period of depression. This is very common for women who are going through this change. And the first thing I'm kind of wondering is, well, how can you tell the difference between a 
major depressive episode and somebody that's just having a bad day? What are the differences there? Well, that's a great question because I think that's something that um, people struggle with because we're allowed to, as humans, we're allowed to be sad and we're allowed to have normal fluctuations in mood. So the big thing, what I like to distinguish between depression with a big D and depression with a little D um, is, you know, first of all, severity. So how long have you been feeling sad? Are you feeling sad most of the day, every day? And then there are three main key features. So one is, are you starting to think about suicide? If that happens, now we're heading towards that big D. Secondly, are you starting to think that you're like the worst person in the world? Are you the worst mom? Are you the worst friend? Are you the worst employee? Almost like a delusion, like you're just completely the worst person that ever lived. We call that a drop in self-attitude or self-esteem. And then the third one is, are you now so sad that you can't experience any pleasure. So like the volume on whatever you're listening to is turned all the way off and nothing can turn it back on. So not like your favorite food that, you know, at least makes you feel a little bit happy. Or if you're a parent thinking about your kids or, you know, watching your favorite TV show or sex or anything, it's just completely like eh, not happy. So if you have one or all of those three things, that's when you know that you're probably heading towards a brain depression or depression with a big D. And that's when you should seek medical attention and see either an MD or a DO psychiatrist instead of a psychologist or a therapist and see if maybe medicine beyond therapy is indicated and it's a real brain depression. So what is the timetable? I think I've heard something like if, if depression lasts longer than three days or if you feel like you're blue for more than three days, you have something more than just, you know, a little D, as you put it. Um, you know, is there is there a specific time, you know, where, where you should be like, hey, I got to go get this looked at? Yeah. So there's this thing called the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual. It's basically this catalog of like diseases and this committee meets and they decide they decide these criteria. So I don't give I mean, a ton of credence to that because it's really like if this depression goes on, not three days, but like it's going on weeks and months and you just, you know, you can't get out of bed and you just don't feel yourself and you're starting to think like, is life even worth living? And maybe it's not to the point of suicide, but hey, if I could go to sleep and never wake up, maybe that would be better. And you're thinking that day after day after day, that's, probably now something on the order of your brain where your neurotransmitters are kind of dampened or depleted. And maybe we can help you with that. Um, or at least figure out if this is a brain depression and you need to go to the right professional to figure that out. Well, let's talk specifically now about depression that accompanies menopause. Is that any different than the type of depression that we're talking about here? I know that before we started rolling tape, you were talking about something just falling off of a cliff, and maybe that's just like a sudden jolt to the system, and that kind of triggers the brain to kind of go into this depressive state. So all humans have depression by having neurotransmitters like shift, which is what people call like this chemical imbalance. Um, so now we used to think it was just serotonin and then we're like, oh, no, it's serotonin and dopamine. And then we're like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. Now we're like it's GABA and acetylcholine. Basically, it's all your neurotransmitters. So what why are women more affected? So women are twice as likely to have depression than men and women 
are highly vulnerable during certain periods. So women have more vulnerability during their premenstrual period. We have more vulnerability postpartum. We have more vulnerability perimenopausally. And what is the same, what is like the, the commonality between these three periods? Well, estrogen withdrawal. So it's not that we have low estrogen as we used to think. It's that it's more like the difference in estrogen. So if estrogen was here before and now it's here, that change in estrogen, it's like, shoom, it falls down. And that precipitous fall is what somehow shakes up the chem other chemicals in the brain and can drop us into a depression. So for some women, even during PMS, it's so bad that they may need medication for the week before their period. Um, for some women, after they give birth, I mean, it's a huge estrogen withdrawal. And certainly perimenopausally, um, per, menopause, you know, what is menopause? It's your ovaries kind of saying, okay, we're kind of done. We done, you know, did what we have to do. We're going to just kind of like chill out now. So no more production of these hormones. And so it's a big estrogen withdrawal and that can precipitate depression, irritability, and all the other symptoms that come with estrogen withdrawal. And what is the link then between diet and mood in this case in particular? We've talked on the show previously about the correlation between, you know, what you eat is really not just, you know, who you are, but how you feel. I mean, it's it's really impactful, the food that we have on our plate, the food that we choose to eat, and how we feel about ourselves. So I would imagine at this period of extreme vulnerability that you're talking about, it's even more critical then that we're making good food decisions. Yes. And so there are some great studies that have been done looking at different populations. Like, I'm sure many of your viewers are familiar with things like the China study, where they looked at different populations and what they eat and then what their outcomes were. So there have been similar studies that have looked at this in um, Asian uh, populations versus Western populations. So if you eat a high-fat, low-fiber diet, you have higher levels of estrogen. So if you have a higher level of estrogen to start with, and then you have the drop, so your drop is like from here to here, versus a lower level of estrogen to start with, because say you eat a low-fat, high-fiber diet, now your drop is here. Now it's a lot less. It's like a softer drop, mm. we'll say. So that softer drop will cause less perimenopausal symptoms, less hot flashes, less depression, less irritability, less vaginal dryness, less et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and we've actually seen this. So in Japan, in Singapore, in China, where diets traditionally before industrialization especially were plant-based, where you had maybe a little bit of meat or seafood if you were wealthier, but mostly you had rice and vegetables. Or if you were in a Latin American population where you had the majority of your calories coming from beans and corn products um, and not hardly any animals or fatty products at all, they don't even have words for menopause. They don't have words for hot flashes versus other diets, other cultures, even vegetarian cultures. So I actually queried my mom and her friends um, about this. And I come from an Indian background, which is vegetarian, but high fat. So a lot of dairy. And so dairy is by nature fatty. So still a vegetarian, but not a vegan diet. Um, 
Definitely. Hot flashes up the wazoo, <laughs> a lot a lot of depression around perimenopausal time, you know, a lot of like just mood shifts and irritability. So what we see is, and it, uh, certainly in American culture and, and in Europe where there are a high meat, high fat, low fiber diets, a lot more perimenopausal symptoms. So we've seen this in studies and seen this consistently. And what this has shown us that hey, maybe there's a link between high-fat, low-fiber diets and estrogen, which we already know, and the resultant menopausal symptoms that we see. So that a lot of estrogen, to begin with, bigger fall, worse symptoms. And and that, that does make sense. I love the way that you put that with the softer fall. It's like the difference between right. jumping from three stories up and then, you know, jumping out of your ground level window. I mean, it's it's sure. just a huge difference there. If you were giving advice, if if you had a patient who came to you and they said, hey, I'm experiencing these symptoms and you say, hey, well, you might want to adjust your diet. Are there certain foods, certain dishes that you might suggest? Like maybe even if they're just personal favorites? Uh, well, I always tell, so I always tell people to try a meatless Monday first and, you know, not to make, like, it's hard for people to make drastic changes. And I think people like chickpeas I found, um, and you can prepare them in whatever way, just throw them into a salad even, or I love putting them. Um, so I like taking like light coconut milk. So it's not super fatty and then cooking it with, um, turmeric and tomatoes and a bunch of Indian spices and then just throwing in like even canned chickpeas yeah. <laughs> and voila you have like chana masala and it's super easy and don't tell my mom I do that because she'd be horrified that I don't do it like the proper way and like cook it from scratch was it the, is it the canned chickpeas <laughs> is that considered cheating yeah. yeah and then I don't make the masala properly and like I just kind of put it all together in like an instant pot but does it taste good <laughs> I mean, does it taste good? That's all that matters. (laughs) You know, the other funny thing is, you know, there was a study out of Harvard last year that said, hey, women who um, had hormone replacement therapy for uh, around perimenopause, they had less depression. So the funny thing is, well, of course, I mean, they still had estrogen on board. um, But hormone replacement therapy increases your risk for heart attack and stroke. So it's not for everyone. And we don't certainly recommend it. I mean, it's a case by case basis if we even recommend it at all it's really falling out of favor and we use it very sparingly now so i kind of find it like almost like wait you know so the thing that you know modern science or modern medicine wants to even maybe once in a while recommend is almost the exact opposite of what a plant-based physician would recommend we would say wait wait we can reduce your risk for even heart attack and stroke with this plant-based diet. Not only will you have less menopausal symptoms, you will have like less likelihood of having a heart attack and a stroke and you won't have hot flashes. So forget the hormone replacement therapy. (laughs) Let's try, let's try this, but it is really hard for people to change habits. So I always say do a meatless Monday, try recipes, use all the wonderful apps we have available. And then you'll see like, Hey, it's pretty tasty. And then that usually snowballs from there. Right. So, I mean, I live in L.A. where everything is easily available. Right. But I know, like, across the country it may not be. But once you start cooking, you'll you'll be surprised, you know? 
I, I was out in L.A. in December, and uh, just off topic, I mean, I absolutely fell in love with the plant-based scene out there. There is no shortage of vegan restaurants out there. I mean, it is just, it's unbelievable. Like, if if you're plant-based, that is the city to live in, I'm convinced, even more so than New York, which has an abundance of them. But L.A., yeah. I mean, it was just, they're everywhere. It was great. Yeah, I, I mean, I it's, it's so easy. Like you can take your omnivore friends and they and they don't miss anything at all. They're just like, oh my god! If you know, if if you if if I knew how to cook like this, like I wouldn't ever <laughs> miss anything. And I'm like, well, you can learn. <laughs> um, real quick here before uh, we we wrap this up, I want to go back to the hormone replacement therapy. This is kind of a, a lay question and one that honestly until just this moment i've never even thought about if a woman decides to go on hormone replacement therapy is she just kind of delaying the inevitable is she going to experience some of those same symptoms when she does eventually stop that treatment yeah you will i mean sometimes it's like a game you're kind of like dampening that fall you're you may taper yourself down you know like the ovarian shutdown may have been a, a higher fall and the hormone replacement isn't quite what your ovaries are producing, but would be less. So you're again, like reducing that fall. So it may be helpful, but there are so many risks, you know, um, my mom's generation, um, and before everyone was put on hormone replacement therapy, and then all these big studies came out, and they're like, Oh, my God, what are we doing? Like, everyone's at such higher risk for all these bad things happening, um, particularly cardiac risks. And so now it's, it's very much case by case. Right, right. So you're talking about lessening that fall. And then you, we also talked about how a low fat, high fiber diet can lessen the fall. Uh, yeah, that comes with uh, actually zero of the cardiac risks. And you know, actually, it's beneficial. So uh, yeah. but, I'm uh, so in terms of lessening the fall, is it comparable? You know, the the dietary change versus the hormone replacement in terms of that estrogen drop off? You know, everyone is different. And, and, you know, like, of course, there's always a genetic component. You know, I know someone will probably listen to this and go look up the studies and say, well, maybe Asian women were less likely to have um, perimenopausal um, symptoms anyways, you know, like there's some genetic component. And I'm sure there there are genetic differences. You know, I'm South Asian. We put visceral fat no matter what. So we have to eat super low fat in order to reduce our cardiac risk. You know, we can't even do BMIs, we have to do abdominal girth or otherwise we're not capturing our, our risk for heart attack and stroke. So yes, there are genetic differences within people. But, so I can't really answer that question. You know, that's something that you and your doctor have to talk about. Um, but if something's so simple, like changing your diet, and I, I don't wanna oversimplify it, I know it can be hard, but if you can make it tasty and you can, eat and not be hungry and lose weight and feel good. At the end of the day, it is simple compared to taking lots of medications and having to worry about the side effects of medications. I mean, hey, I would do it. Um, I come from a family where, you know, if my parents are told they have high blood pressure, they'll, they'll go for walks. They'll like cut their sodium. <laughs> <So> <laughs> my patients are not like this, but you know, like if you can do that, that, that will only help you. Sure. Sure. All <laughs> yeah. right. Well, Dr. Rupali Chadra, before uh, you go, uh, tell us where can people get in contact with you? 
So I have a website I'm still working on and building, but it's rupalichadhamd.com. That's R as in Robert, U, P as in Paul, A, lollipop, I, C as in cat, H, A, D as in dog, H, A, M, D, dot com. I love I love that lollipop eye. That is that is the greatest thing ever. Oh man, you you are a true gem. Thank you so much for coming I on. Um, I think that uh, you are going to become a regular on this show because um, <laughs> there is so much that I think that we can do. The link between the brain and what we eat is very strong, and uh, this is something that you clearly shine in. So um, I, I can't thank you for coming on uh, enough, and then certainly want to bring you on again in the future and who knows what we're going to talk about you know but i'm sure it's going to be interesting (laughs) sounds good thank you so much a ton of great information there my thanks to doctors chata and Cobb, and of course dr neil barnard for their time today feel like we covered a lot of ground but But there is still some other aspects that we need to touch on. So if you would like for us to revisit anything, just let us know. Tweet your questions to me at Chuck Carroll WLC using the exam room podcast hashtag, or you can also tweet them to at PCRM. And if you're more of an Instagrammer, message me there at Chuck Carroll WLC or the show is at Physicians Committee. And I promise you we will get to as many of your questions as possible on an upcoming episode of the exam room. And again, before we get out of here, thank you so much for a record-setting month of May. You guys absolutely shattered the download record and have humbled all of us here to the core. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for believing in this show. And if you haven't already done so, maybe you're new to the exam room, hmm? please go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher. Wherever you get your favorite shows from, that's where you can find us. And when you do, please leave a five-star rating and a nice comment if you would be so kind. And don't forget to register, by the way, for the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine coming up July 26th and 27th. There's also a special pre-conference session on July 25th. Plus, I'm going to be there taping episodes of The Exam Room live and would love nothing more than for you to come up and introduce yourself. It would completely make my day. You honestly have no idea how much I would appreciate that. So to register for the conference and get a full list of speakers, just head right on over right now to pcrm.org slash ICNM. And that is going to do it for us this week. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, keep it plant-based.